The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ah yes, that moment you realise you're walking among giants. Enjoy the perks of a university ranked in the top 300 in the world. Study online, on campus or both. Massey University. Success from a thousand little moments. To find out more, visit massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. No mai, haere mai, and welcome back to Conversations That Count, Ngā Kōrero Whaitake. This is the third episode of our third season, and today we're talking about workplace well-being, our employers focusing on the right things when it comes to creating healthy, sustainable environments and conditions for their staff, or is there a lot of work still to be done? I'm your host, Stacey Morrison, and today, as usual, I'm joined by two fantastic guests. From Massey University, we have Zoe Brownlee. Zoe is the Employee Wellbeing Manager at Massey and co-founder of All Human, which works with organisations on progressing diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging and well-being. Alongside Zoe, we're also welcoming Rachel McIntosh to the studio today. Rachel is an Assistant National Secretary with Etsu Union. She's Vice President of the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions, or NZCTU, and is currently heading up the Coalition for a Safe World of Work campaign. Kia ora, Stacey. Um, tēnā koe. Tēnā koe. Kia ora, Stacey. Thank you so much. It's such a privilege to be here. Tēnā kōrua. So Zoe, this is a big question. First of all, when we say workplace wellbeing, what does that mean to you? And does it mean the same thing to employers as it does to employees? So I guess in terms of workplace wellbeing, it's a relatively new concept. Like 10 years ago, people were expected to leave their wellbeing at home and definitely don't bring it into the workplace. We've got no responsibility for looking after that. And over the last 10 years, it's changed dramatically. And then the pandemic has kind of amplified it even more. So in terms of workplace wellbeing, it's the, it's the same as wellbeing, really. It's just the workplace has some responsibilities in that space. So it's not just looking at physical well-being or mental well-being and it's not just looking at how people are when they're at work it's looking at how people are all the time because it's not like people can just shut off um I always think that a really great way of looking at it is looking at uh, Tame Sinjuri's model of well-being, Tefara Tapafa, and looking at all the elements that that make up well-being for for all our people. So that is physical well-being, mental well-being, spiritual well-being, and Fano well-being. So making sure that we're looking at well-being holistically, and when we're looking at it in the workplace, going okay, um, people need to be well here, but they need to be well at home. They need to be well in general, for them to be able to thrive at work. Yeah, and also those blurry lines now of working from home. But what are you seeing in terms of consistency, Rachel, of how employers are acting? Uh, There might be a legal level of requirement, but then just the things that actually make a difference for workplace wellbeing. So for COVID, yeah, there's, there's a huge variation. So the legal minimum is the 10 days sick leave that is required by law. That's the legal minimum that employers have to provide. And we advocate for employers to do much better than that, to um, preferably separate out COVID leave. Um, 
sick leave is only only one of the things, though. So as Zoe was saying, t- totally where I was, what I, I was thinking of saying is that you know the workforce is people and work is life, you know, and and. Um, the way em- employers definitely have a role to understand that workers are not workers are people, and you know we talk about working people much more often than we talk about workers because people is really vital and central. And um, yeah, I, there isn't really consistency except that most employers comply with the law. Um, not all em- employers even do that. And um, so, as a union movement, what we want to see is. Uh, really progressive approach to COVID and understanding that even when people come back from COVID, they're not necessarily at full strength and make allowances for that and not expect everybody, you know, you're off for a week, you're back, boom, full strength. That's actually not the reality for people who've had COVID. I haven't. Um, So, um, yeah, there's that. And I guess another kind of angle that we take as a movement is to think about decent work and understanding that work is life. Um, and so decent work means um, decent income. It means security of employment as well, or security of hours, all those kind of things, which are huge issues for the New Zealand workforce. A decent workplace, which incorporates a lot of the um, the things that you mentioned, Zoe, um, the tapawha, um, mm. that's you know, having a good experience while you're there, having your physical, spiritual, emotional and psychological health um, nurtured, um, having skills development, and then finally a a voice at work um, Mm. so that the input not just for the job that somebody is paid for, but people's input into what the what the work is, you know, what the um, what yeah, what they're there for is so all those things are part of um, well well being at work, yeah. And does everyone have their mana recognised in that way, or certain jobs get more uh, opportunity to engage with having their needs listened to? What what do you? perceive, uh, Zoe, does everyone at every part and every type of role uh, get the same kind of opportunity to be for their workplace well-being to be considered? Short answer, no. It, it's it's so inconsistent um, across organisations and across roles within organisations as well. So some organisations are doing brilliantly and going, we're, you know, we're in a pandemic, we need to completely change how we're operating because we need to acknowledge the humanness of what our people need. We need to listen to our people. They're saying they want flexibility. They're saying they want job security. They're saying they um, want, you know, extra leave um, and... What and and, and organisations are, lis- yeah, as I said, listening to people and and um, giving them what they need in in ways and and coming up with solutions together. Right? Other organisations are going back to okay, we need to operate how we operated before COVID and expecting people to come back Monday to Friday into the office, no matter how they're feeling. Expecting people to um, be able to produce the same amount of work. And that's just not the reality. That's not what people are needing. People are feeling burnt out. People are feeling stressed. People are feeling vulnerable and like they need some security from their workplace. So so organisations are tackling it very differently, as well as people within organisations. You know, organisations are traditionally very hierarchical. So it's the people up the top making the decisions around what workplace wellbeing initiatives or support are being put in place. And unfortunately, those people in those positions um, don't represent the communities that we have in Aotearoa. So it is specific people making these decisions for specific people to benefit from them. 
And yet, Rachel, we saw, you know, that service, retail, all of the things that we really counted on and aren't always rewarded in a monetary sense or in terms of how they're treated at workplace, they're actually, we need those people. So who are the voice and is, is that what you are finding you have to do more and more is speak up for workers who don't have that kind of agency? Absolutely. I mean, workplace, yeah, workplace wellbeing is also about the kind of relationships that you have at work. And so what Zoe said about who makes the decisions, whose voice is heard is absolutely vital. And yeah, I mean, it is worth, I think, retelling the story that I presume everybody's heard a lot, I certainly have, about, um, you know, the NHS, people clapping for the NHS was nice. You know, there was that period where everybody realised what work actually keeps us going as a society, you know, who could sit at home and who couldn't sit at home. Mm. The flow on from that has not been, there hasn't been an obvious flow on from that. And um, what we know is that relationships at work, they're collective. And unionised workplace doesn't guarantee a good relationship, but it is the foundation for one. You know, it's a recognised international human right, the right to organise collectively and have an independent voice. The interests of working people and their bosses are not identical. There's overlap, but they're not identical. And so that independence is really important, and that can be a foundation for a really healthy relationship. Um, And then there's there's resources, you know. There's the distribution of wealth is obviously vital. So um, having a voice is great. Um, Having the money without the voice is not enough, you know. That's not dignity. That's not well-being. Um, And you can have have a decent income and still not um, experience well-being at work if you're not treated well, if the relationships are poor. I was interested in what you were saying, Zoe, about hierarchy. So what are the options? How do we... What else can workplaces do? And we're quite entrenched in going, this is how hierarchy works. There's a couple of people and they get the top job and they get more money. And that means they're more important. And then things filter down. What are alternatives? I think workplaces within Aotearoa and maybe within uh, the world as well are heading towards a less hierarchical system, some anyway. Um, so there are short-term things that organisations can do to get the best from their people, and that is actually listening to their people. So no matter what position they hold within the organisation, going, you count, your voice is valid, we want to hear what you have to say, and putting things in place to sort of co-create the future with their people. So that's a sort of short-term thing that people can do. They can also organisations can also look at their recruitment practices and their values as an organisation and really go, okay, do we want people to come in and act in a hierarchical way that is going to involve bullying, is going to involve their position being the most important, or are they going to come in and value the information that they get from all their people within the organisation? So there are sort of short and long term things that organisations can do. To, to make sure that it's not just those people at the top, as well as uh, recruiting for diversity and making sure that there are diverse people on governance, there are diverse people on leadership teams, so that those uh, stories and those experiences from different people from within Aotearoa are, are heard and as well as that role models there for other people to be heard as well. Rachel, what would you say about understanding of the value of diversity in terms of governance, uh, organisations that understand that diversity means a better outcome? Where are we at with that? Would you say we're doing well? 
I think there is progress. There's probably more progress in publicly funded organisations. Uh, there is a, you know, there are legislative requirements that people have fought for politically to recognise tetiriti, and, and um, Education Act requires um, the honouring of tetiriti, not just the principles. So where there's public funding, there's more awareness and education for a multinational corporation where the decisions are being made in Sydney or Amsterdam or New York, it's uh, it's a much more difficult conversation. There is a, an international kind of trend for it, but how deeply how deeply it it flows um, is really variable. And I think it's uh, there is there's much more window dressing than there is genuine genuine approach. And um, what we see is organisations that are happy to have a diverse governance or a diverse leadership as long as it's assimilated, as long as the, you know, the brown face or the, the female face actually thinks the same way as the rest of the people and has the same skills and that the things mm. that are valued are still, are still the old ones. So, for example, you're looking for somebody on governance and one of the things you're looking for is a long track record of governance. Then you're going to get middle-aged Pakeha men who will, you know, they'll score really highly, and um, that's one of the things that we see. And we need to we need to value different things mm. in order to really change how organisations function. Because it's not diversity of thought, and it's not diversity of experience. And I like how you segued into the tiriti, uh, because when we speak about diversity, I actually. I understand the goodwill that people generally work with that, but I do point out that Māori aren't so much, don't come in under diversity, but it's tangata whenua, uh, which is a different a different space, um, but can present diversity of thought. The tetiti is for everybody, not just Māori and not just Pākehā. So when we speak to um, te tiriti and how it may turn up when you you pointed out honouring te tiriti rather than the principles of, which is a nice sort of furry way of talking about it, what does it look like in a workplace when people say, OK, we're going to be a organisation that honours te tiriti? I think there are so many things that organisations can do, both small things that build up over time and sort of long-term plans that people can put in place. It really is about, and although it's about tetiriti for Aotearoa, it can be uh, similar to what people um, can do globally in terms of bringing all their people in, no matter where their voice comes from. So making sure that everyone has a voice, making sure that Māori have a voice, making sure that tikanga practices are not only practiced within an organisation, but the root and the understanding of why and how and who is impacted by it and the history and the future of those practices are really valued. So it's more than like just what Rachel was talking about in terms of you saying organisation do that kind of uh, tokenistic stuff around diversity, Window right? dressing. Yeah, yeah, window dressing, thank you. Um, it's more about really being uh, acting in a way that um, works in terms of tetiriti rather than going, okay, tick box, we've put in a karakia, okay, we have, um, you know, the tetiriti on our, our walls and we're saying that we're honouring it. It's really digging deeper, bringing everyone on the journey to make sure that awareness is raised and then people within the organisation and uh, community and whānau from within the communities can all make decisions together and have a voice 
and taking Aotearoa together as one, but with many different ways of working. Mm. Now, I like how you express that because there are different ways of being a New Zealander and it actually ensures what we call well-being, holistically, hauora uh, for all in terms of our connections like you just described before, whānau. So whānau is around your social connections as well. And you're saying, Rachel, that relationships at work are one of the key factors. What can employers work on when it comes to improving relationships? I think what Zoe said about listening, employers can encourage an independent voice for their staff, so through a trade union, um, and and work to have a good relationship, a good relationship there where, where there is listening on both sides. I mean, it's always listening on the employee side because um, generally employers have the, they have the tools of communication and when people say improve communication, um, they do a lot more talking. Um, so I think listening and accommodating and being really prepared to change. So, you know, tatsiriti is about sharing power and um, so with modern hierarchical workplaces, that means we need to have a power shift. So practically, I think, from a practical point of view, people are starting from all different um, points of view, and if you have staff turnover, um, that's that's going to be constant. So you can't do a big kind of education and then think, oh, that's good, everybody knows now, because then you have new people joining the organisation and old people. So constant education. Um, and I think for Tauiwi, a lot of work to understand exactly what you said, that it's tatiriti is not just a Māori thing, you know, are we looking after our Māori staff properly? Um, <laughs> that, that's not what tatiriti is about, and I think it just, it needs to be constant, and it needs vigilance, and it needs um, needs making mistakes, and it needs being uncomfortable, and it needs, um, it needs all of those things. And that you're a good leader when you do that, I guess, so it's maybe a bit of a reframing would you say, Zoe, for some people, what a rangatira is, so, you know, to literally bring people together, that it's sharing of power and that that will make all more powerful uh, because in hierarchical kind of structures, we just believe, OK, I'm the CEO and I'm waggling my finger and telling everyone what to do. Do you think that's an expectation of employees these days to have a, a bit more interaction with their with their bosses? Absolutely. And I think we're seeing that as younger people come into the workforce and are expecting something quite different from what maybe we see in the workforce, um, they are expecting to have a voice. They're expecting to be included. They're expecting to be able to bring their whole selves to work and that be valued and celebrated instead of having to leave some of themselves at the door. So absolutely, I think uh, we're going to see quite a shift over the next little while, uh, and and organisations are going to miss out. They're they're not going to succeed if they're not making those spaces where people can be themselves. They're not making spaces where people can acknowledge the humanity of all of us. They're not going to succeed if they continue to recruit in the way that they recruit. Like what you were saying, Rachel, in terms of experience, in terms of. Uh, role experience rather than life experience and the experience that their whānau brings. So I think things are, are slowly changing and uh, for the better, as well as organisations realising that this kind of, all the things that we're talking about is not a nice to have. It's not a, oh, this is a nice, nice fluffy thing that we'll do on the side. It absolutely makes 
uh, commercial sense as well. So people being well at work, people being included at work brings productivity. It brings innovation. It brings uh, better recruitment, better retention. People take less sick days. So even though it's the right thing to do, there's also a business case, which I know we shouldn't always talk about the business case, but some people are, are focused they on that. They need that reason. Yeah, there is a huge business case for it. So it, it's not just around, oh, we've got to waste money in this space because it's the right thing to do. You'll make money from doing it too. Would you agree with that, Rachel, in terms of your work with Air2 and NZCTU? You're dealing with workers across a huge range of industries. Is that the prevailing mood of the country, would you say, at the moment, that people need ways to be able to get through the sustained period of stress that we've had? Absolutely. That Yeah, yeah, it's like that question about the workforce. The workforce is the population. So, you know, we all know other people. And I think the different ways people are experiencing this pandemic, they play out across our workforce. And um, there's definitely um, huge amounts of stress um, and worry and insecurity and understaffing. Um, sometimes there was understaffing already, as there was in the care sector, and then that's just exacerbated by the fact that, um, you know, people... People are getting COVID and having to take time off for that. In terms of this phase of the pandemic, um, and I guess a lot of media saying that it's it's a job market, are you seeing people moving around a lot? Uh, yeah, are you both nodding? <laughs> so yes. what are you seeing? <laughs> Absolutely. So, so a lot of people are calling it the great resignation because people are being confronted with this idea that we're not going to live forever. We're vulnerable people and uh, we don't want to be continuing doing jobs that have no meaning, that don't fulfil us or staying at workplaces that don't value us as people and look after us. So there's a huge amount of movement across um, Aotearoa as well as people moving overseas now that they can. So another reason why organisations really do need to focus on well-being as a key priority for what they're for how they're supporting their people so that they can keep their people. And what are you seeing, Rachel, in terms of uh, uh, employers aiming for retention, or are they looking overseas? What do you What do you see? It's been interesting because in the past two years, looking overseas has been basically off not the table, option. not an option. And um, so employers. Yeah, employers do want to retain people um, and often we as a union movement have to make the connection for them that actually you need to pay people better in a lot of situations and treat people with greater respect and give them a, a greater, yeah, give them decent work in order for them to want to stay. So was your point when you were saying, Zoe, about uh, what people want, are we seeing that flexibility will sometimes outweigh money even? Absolutely. Yeah. So people are choosing the ability to for their lives to work for them over cash. So yes, flexibility is the big one. So people would rather be able to go and pick up their children or do a, a hobby before they come to work in the morning or just have that flexibility to go, you know what, I don't feel in the right mind frame for the next like hour or so to be working. So I'm going to log off for a bit and I'll come on a bit later. So that real flexibility around hours and that flexibility around where they work from. So uh, people have very different ideas around what they need. Some people want to go back into an office environment because they're missing that and they feel safe doing so. Other people want to stay at home and organisations really need to be offering that and 
really be flexible with their flexibility because there's not one model that fits fits everyone. So yes, people are people are wanting that over money. And have you seen, um, Rachel, that some people discover they quite like working from home or that things are just as efficient or that it was a high overhead for the office anyway? What are you, what are you seeing? There is an element of that, and that's in higher paid work that can be done from home. Um, just want to make the point that we also represent thousands and thousands of people who don't have that luxury and for whom the pay is not sufficient that they can give up some of the pay in order for flexibility mm. or shorter hours, that there are people who need more hours because the pays so low um, and that, that, that that's just as just as much of a feature as the other. But yeah, we are seeing all those things amongst the higher paid workforce, that there's ups and downs. You know, there's good things about working from home. There's good, some people want to go back into the office, some people like, and a lot of people want um, a hybrid, you know, some days at home and some days in the office, if they're in the kind of work that can um, that can adapt to that. That's an important point. And people who worked through the pandemic included people who were working on roads, uh, people who just had to keep infrastructure going. How are those industries feeling in terms of the burnout we speak of? Yeah, so the infrastructure workforce definitely has been working really hard, as has the care workforce and the retail workforce particularly, working really hard and and really badly understaffed. And particularly the care industry is just really understaffed. And there's a campaign called um, Safe Staffing, which is across, across all nursing and home care and aged care, that there are not enough people in that work. How can we encourage people to go into this work? Is it at, at the moment, is that part of the campaign? Yeah, well, um, decent pay is one thing, and also um, career paths and skill development, and that you know those things that I talked about before of you know the work being fulfilling. A lot of people actually love that work, even though it's, a lot of people stay because they really care about the work they're doing and recognise the importance of taking care of vulnerable people in our society, um, disabled people, elderly people, and people love that that's what they're doing, um, and so. That's, that's a, a course. That's yeah. that, that's something to start with. But in decent conditions where the hours are not excessive, that you don't have to work so many hours to get by because the pay rates are so low, and that skills are recognised and that qualifications um, are given and, yeah, all those kind of things. It's definitely not something that everyone can do. No. Absolutely. I'm coming from the, the healthcare kind of point of view, is that this is an issue globally. It's not just even happening in Aotearoa. So this needs to be an area where our government or governments across the world need to get really innovative in and go, OK, well, we literally do not have enough nurses and we can't continue asking them to work extra hours. We can't continue asking them to work where there's not enough staff working. So there's got to be clever ways and it's not going to happen overnight, but there's got to be plans in place to get more people into those workplaces, to work with other countries across the world to make sure that we're working together and collaboratively in a way that everyone's going to benefit rather than this country or group are going to benefit and these people aren't. So it's, it's, a, it's a space where governments need to work together and become really uh, collaborative. I also wanted to ask you about the New Zealand Workplace Barometer, and that's a piece of work being done by a group at Massey University. And as an example of effective, important research in the respect, could you could you explain to us what this entails and why it matters as far as you guys are concerned? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I can't take any credit for, for being a part of this, but I just 
um, am such a fan of this research that's taking place and it's ongoing research, so it's it's continuing. Um, it's all around workplace wellbeing and what really impacts people when they're when they're at work. It it started kind of just as the pandemic kicked off, but the results are really fascinating. So there are sort of four main areas which which the the research is saying impacts workplace wellbeing. So the first one is having a psychosocially safe climate, so letting people being able to speak up, feel safe, be themselves. The second one is around organisational justice, so having a fair um, workplace, and that's where um, those sort of equitable wellbeing outcomes come into play as well. The third one is around inclusion, so really including uh, everyone from from the organisation, people having a voice, people giving being given the tools that they need to be able to do the, their job well. And the fourth one is around management competency, so those people that are given uh, positions of leadership or power um, are given the tools or or are recruited in the right right way and the the personality traits of people are recruited who are going to be successful in those positions of of working with people. So those four areas are coming up as the areas from uh, from the workplace barometer that really, really make an impact. So it's not around, okay, let's put a free fruit bowl in for our people. Let's not put in resilience training when they're telling us that they're burnt out and stressed, mindfulness training. Uh, and I'm not saying those things are bad. Those things can be okay. But it's really about looking at the systemic changes which are needed to then uh, support workplace wellbeing for everyone. Yeah, as in maybe that workload just wasn't sustainable for anybody, those kind of understandings. And while we're speaking to projects, uh, Rachel, a similar question. You're currently working on the Coalition for a Safe World of Work campaign. So what does that campaign entail and, and what does this work hope to achieve? So the aim of the campaign is just modest. We want to eliminate violence and harassment from the world of work. Good. Um, and that's the world of work, so it's a really broad definition. And there's an international labour organisation convention, the Violence and Harassment Convention, that was completed in 2019. And one of the aims of the campaign is to have that that convention ratified in New Zealand. And the convention is provides an extraordinary framework for the elimination, addressing and eliminating violence and harassment. It looks at it from a health and safety point of view, so that's kind of risk um, risk management. It looks at it from a rights point of view, so employment rights and what kind of redress people have. But thirdly, and it integrates all these three, thirdly and really interestingly, and it's brand new on the international law field, it recognises the power imbalance that underlies violence and harassment mm-hmm. in the world of work. And to ratify this is potentially revolutionary in our country. So, yeah, this this is something that we're really keen on. It provides a framework and it provides a culture shift. At the moment, violence and harassment are basically considered to be an individual issue, and they're really not. They're cultural. You know, there are power imbalances. The convention is quite small. It's quite tight. Huge amount of international research, including from New Zealand, went into it. Um, New Zealand government and employers and workers all went to Geneva and we were part of, I was there, part of um, part of putting this convention together and it recognises that it's collective and that it requires a culture shift. So it's not just about things like if you suffer from sexual harassment, what are you going to do about it? That's in there and that's really important that we improve in that area. But it's also what are the underlying causes? What kind of education do we need? 
how do we address perpetrators? So at the moment, often the best outcome for somebody who's suffered violence and harassment in the world of work is that somebody gets sacked. Um, that person still exists in our mm. country, in our society. Where do they go? What do they do? What happens to them? So it's about education and changing our culture. Because it has a power analysis, it recognises that some people are more likely to suffer violence and harassment than others. And they all, we all have equal rights, but we're not all in the same situation. So there's an emphasis on gender-based violence and harassment, but there's also a recognition that um, Indigenous people, migrant workers, um, older workers, younger workers, queer workers are actually more likely to suffer from violence and harassment and it requires employers and governments to take that into account when they look at solutions. It's a fantastic tool. It, it provides a definition. At the moment there's, there's, a tr there's a problem in our country because there's no clear definition of bullying but it recognises that violence and harassment are actually a continuum, a range of behaviours and that you just, you, you want to stop it, you know. It, it shouldn't have to be repeated before it's taken seriously which is the current legal situation. Things have to be repeated before you get any redress. No, if it happens once, mm. it's not good. So that's our campaign. We want the um, the government to put it up its work program to get the convention ratified. There are some law changes that will have to happen, which is partly why you know they're busy. Um, yeah. But it's not impossible. There are a lot of really good things happening. So Marama Davidson's. Um, violence program is, is a really vital part of it because the other thing the convention recognises is domestic violence as a workplace issue. Um, so that's really important. There's a bill before Parliament at the moment extending the time frame for raising a personal grievance in the case of sexual harassment. At the moment you have only 90 days and anybody who's experienced sexual harassment knows that sometimes you sit with those feelings for a long time before you have the strength to speak up. Um, so there are already initiatives underway in this country that are moving us towards being able to ratify. But it just gives us a framework and that work's been done and let's ratify it and, and let's take the guidance that that provides so that we can really change the culture in this country because that's a vital part of well-being. It's relevant to what you said as well, Zoe, about the younger generation and their expectations of work. And it's not just because they were born entitled, it's because schools do more education around bullying and, and what is acceptable behaviour. It's not always perfect there either, but expectations are different because they've learnt about that. What is uh, an acceptable way to be treated and how do we respond to bullying? Would you say that that's been part of why there's a bit of a generational gap on understanding of, of what bullying is and what harassment should be, I guess, put up with? Yeah, I think so. As as with a lot of things right in life, generations bring new new ways of thinking and ways of working as, as we all learn along the way. Unfortunately, I think although there's a lot of awareness raising within within schools and within places that our young people are at, there's also the wider society, right, and the messages they get from the media, the messages they get from um, family, from friends, um, from the workplaces when, when they're going into workplaces. So although they're aware themselves, a lot of them, they are then going into the workplace and feeling unhappy with how things are because the, our workplaces predominantly are still working in, in quite a historic way. So um, yes, it's going to take some time for to make proper progress, I think. But um, there is hope because as we all learn and research comes out and best practice and the push from these younger people, 
things will have to change for us to be able to continue to to exist. You've spoken to both a workplace and what they can do, also structures and systemic and societal changes. So like you said, probably the best way to sum it up is there is hope, there is action that we can all take. Thank you so much for this conversation that counts. Kia ora. You've been listening to Conversations That Count. Ngā kōrero whaitake. Brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Massey University. It was hosted by Stacey Morrison. It was produced by Tiaihe Butler, with content management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Special thanks to our partnership's editorial team of Matthew McCauley and Elisa Rivera. Study online, on campus or both with Massey University. To find out more, visit massey.ac.nz. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.